0: So we're uh, week two in a series where we're talking about kind of some of these weird Bible verses. Uh, The Bible says what? I can't believe some of these texts are actually in there. And what we did last week is we kind of started, we're talking about some of these obscure passages that we find in the Bible uh, that sometimes when we read the Bible through in a year, maybe we sort of gloss over them. Or we stop and we go, why would this be in Scripture? And I want to share one of those today, one of the practices today. Uh, I just want you to be aware today, uh, it's going to push your limits a little bit. It's not a comfortable topic, but it's going to be incredibly fun for me. And I think that that really really matters the most. I want to talk about this. If I had a title for the sermon, I would call it the weirdest dowry ever. Now, we know this. We don't really practice this in our world today. But we know that in, in ancient times, what would happen was, uh, the, you know, the, the the groom's family or the groom would have to come up with, with a price to buy his bride. Now, this is not, you know, the first form of human trafficking, but it's, it's kind of this idea of making sure that there's blessing on both sides. And what we have today is a story that talks about uh, paying the dowry, talking about how much the dowry is going to be. And oftentimes the bride's family, the bride's father particularly, would decide what that cost would be. Now, here's the weird story, so let's talk about it. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, we have a story of a guy named David. Now, we know David. David, um, you know, he defeats Goliath. He he will be the future king of Israel. Uh, They just don't all know that just yet. And he, because he defeated Goliath, he is allowed to marry one of Saul's daughters. And this was the the, the price or the prize, shall we call it, of him defeating Goliath. And now it's time for them to decide on what the dowry will be and what the cost will be. So let's join th- this story 1 Samuel chapter 18 beginning in verse uh, in verse 24. David's kind of kind of asked wh- who am I to be, you know, Saul's son in law, but it says when David's servant when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, "Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride." than a hundred Philistine foreskins. That's a weird gift. This is why you register for gifts, okay? Because otherwise you don't know what you're going to get. To take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So Saul doesn't like David. David is a threat. And so he says, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to appear like I'm, I'm this good guy, and I'm going to put him in harm's way so that hopefully my enemies will kill him, and then I won't have to deal with them I- anymore. It says, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the Lord's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, which they had a timeline on these, David took his men and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their, their foreskins. They counted them out. Now, you want to talk about a bad illustration, how do you illustrate this on a Sunday morning, uh, to, to the full numbers so that, th- that David might become the king, king's son-in-law, and then Saul gives David McCall for him to marry. Now, let's talk a little bit about the practice of circumcision, because it is this, this ancient practice. It is something that they participate in, especially if you read the Old Testament, There is a time when this happens, and maybe one of the questions we have to ask before we talk about circumcision today, which is a topic that everybody loves to talk about in church, shall we say, we've got to say, where did this practice of circumcision come from? Where did it ultimately originate? And I thought, now if you're visiting for the first time today, I'm so sorry that you chose to come on this Sunday, because you're going to say, well, you know, how was Journey Church? Well, it was interesting. I'll tell you what, they talk about some funny things over there. Uh, But I thought, you know, this is such a hard topic for us to talk about, and yet there is incredible value and something that we can actually learn from it today. But because we don't take ourselves too seriously, and hopefully you won't be too offended, uh, let's listen to Jim Gaffigan talk about circumcision.
1: I am trying to be more responsible. I'm a father now. That's right. I became a priest. Thank you. Bless you. It's interesting. You know, when I was single, I never really saw myself as a family man. But now that I'm married and I have two beautiful children, it's really made me appreciate being alone. (laughs) It's hard. My daughter's four, my son's two. I tell you, it's exhausting watching my wife do all that work. (laughs) She should get some help. I can barely nap through the screaming. (laughs) I tell you, explaining things to my kids makes me realize how little I know Recently, my son pointed to an antenna and said, look, daddy, stick. And I said, actually, that's an antenna. He goes, what's an antenna? It's a stick. <laughs> it's a silver stick. You nailed it, buddy. <laughs> of course, you have a boy, you have to deal with the circumcision question. Men love that topic. Like, uh, can you talk about something else? Because circumcision's a scary word. I looked it up in the dictionary. I just said, ah! We went through it, that only because my son requested it. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. Obviously, it started as a religious tradition, circumcision, but how'd they even come up with the idea? When well, there were a bunch of religious leaders gathered, one guy was like, all right, how should we honor God? I was like, well, I see we don't eat pork. I don't know, I like bacon. <laughs> all right, no pork. We'll go no pork. I want that man removed! My wife told me that in the Bible, Abraham circumcised himself. Wow. I can't even get to the bank before it closes. How did Abraham even tell his wife? Maybe he didn't, he was just getting out of the shower. She was like, what have you done? (laughs) Honey, I can explain told me to do it. If God told you to jump off a bridge, if God told you to sacrifice our first I actually, I have to talk to you about that one.
0: Uh, obviously, we know that um, circumcision was not people's idea. It was God's idea. We have this thing called the covenant of circumcision that happens in the Old Testament. And what he's referring to here is actually uh, uh, the passage out of Genesis chapter 17, where God establishes this covenant with Abraham, it says this: When Abram was 99 years old, <coughs> the Lord appeared to him and said, "I am God Almighty." The word for this in Hebrew is El Shaddai. I am the El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will gra- and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. You will no longer be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, which means that you will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God. And the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. The covenant that you shall keep. Every male shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign or the marker of the covenant between me and you. And then if you drop down to verse 26, it says, Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in the household or bought from a foreigner, they were circumcised with now, this is kind of an obscure story, and it seems really, really barbaric. Why, why would they engage in this practice? And one of the things we have to do before we even understand what this is, is we have to, we have to understand, how do you make a covenant? How, how do you actually do that? How are covenants actually made? Now, our English Bibles, unfortunately, lie to us a little bit about that because they don't translate the words correctly. The funny thing about it is you do not actually make a covenant, you cut a covenant. That's the actual language, but it doesn't sound good in English. But every time God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, the word that he's using is, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. That's the language that's being used, which gives us a tip as to what this thing of covenant making really is. We learn very quickly that covenants are physical manifestations of spiritual choices. God makes the covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to be yours, you're going to be mine, and then the covenant, the cutting part, is going to be a sign or a marker of this covenant, this spiritual choice that you and I have made together. That's that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a physical marker of something that you and I have decided on a spiritual level. That's how covenants are made. What we learn very quickly, if you use the word cutting and covenant, you realize that covenants... Require blood. There has to be some sort of blood for a covenant to be made. That's the basic requirement of how we make a covenant. Which also means that covenants require sacrifice. There's a level of pain and death that is involved in covenants. And usually it's, it's the death of an animal that allows a covenant to be made between people. But you can't cut things without pain. It's, it's part of covenant. You know what they used to do when they would cut a covenant is they would take an animal, sometimes a sheep or a, or you know or or, or a cow or something like that, and they would basically hack up the animal, and they would place these these pieces kind of around this little pathway, and whoever had made a decision, they would they would walk through between. You know, all these, the, these hacked up pieces of an animal on the other side. And, and what it was really saying was, you can do this to me if I violate the covenant that I've made with you. I try to work that into every wedding ceremony that I do. Okay, it really, really, really just speaks to the couple. I would love the couple, you know, to walk through the hacked up pieces of a, of a cat, uh, you know, and just really make a, make a covenant. I mean, it would be really good for the couple, and it eliminates cats. So it's a win-win for everybody, let's be honest. Um, But covenants are a big deal, and and sometimes we miss that because we don't see that covenants are sacrificial. Now, again, I'm going to be a little indelicate right now, and I don't mean to be indelicate because I want us to make sure that we understand what covenants are. If we talk about some of the covenants of the Old Testament and some of the covenants even of the New Testament, we see that circumcision was a covenant. On the eighth day, if you were a Jew, if you were a a boy, on the eighth day, you would go to the temple, and that was a, a circumcision moment. Or in childbirth or in marriage, or even atonement, or how we are saved. Uh, that, that's really what that word word means. All of these things involve, involve some kind of blood. Because that's what co- covenants require. When a boy is circumcised, obviously there is some blood. When a woman gives birth to a child, there is, I know it's gross, but there, there, there is blood that is shed. And it's a covenantal moment to say, you have come out of me, and I am covenanting to be your parent. Even in marriage, there is Blood shed. Uh, the same way that in old Jewish circles, uh, on the day that a woman was married, usually this was the first time that she would have sex. And when women have sex for the first time, there is blood involved because it's a covenantal moment. In fact, it used to be far worse than that. Do you think you have rough families? What would happen is the couple would stand before the entire congregation. They would make their vows. They would break the cup. The father of the groom and the father of the bride would walk the newly married couple to the marriage tent and would stand outside while they consummated their marriage for the first time. That is a practice we should totally bring back, I think. Right? That's awkward. And let me tell you another thing. I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to be gross for a second, but there's a reason why women wear white on their wedding day. It's meant to represent purity. It's meant to represent that she's starting a new life. It was also taken into the marriage tent, and it was used after they had consummated their marriage, and you would actually, they would actually wipe some of the blood on the dress and then hang the dress on the outside of the tent to show that they're in covenant with each other. We've got it easy today compared to some of the things that they had to go through. This is why when we talk about Jesus dying on a cross, his blood being spilled as a sacrifice, we have to know that covenants are a big deal. When God talks about covenants, they are a big deal. And we live in a world where we don't like covenants. In fact, we, av- we avoid becoming covenant people. We would much rather just have agreements or contracts. We don't like the high cost of covenants. And that's maybe why we live in a world that struggles with agreement. We live in a world of what I'm going to call anti-covenantal thinking. And I'll give you an example. A lot of us do shopping online, right? Because you can get so much more variety from things online. And it's so easy and convenient. And you can just type it all in on your phone and drive up and they'll put it in your trunk. Or you can just wait a few days and, and you know, you'll, you'll get it at your doorstep. Now, we know almost in empirically, not, uh, not perfectly, that anything that you order online, you could potentially get in how many days? Two days. If the resurrection happened in this day and age, it would have taken two days, not three. Because we do not wait three, we're we happy with two. That's what we do, two-day shipping. Amazon, when they initiated the two-day free shipping, people loved it. Anything you want, you can have in two days. And so now we sit in our pajamas and say, instead of going down and, and hunting for this item, I'm just going to order it that's magically going to show up outside. And we love that. But there was something that they uh, did a couple years ago, they did this huge study on why people are wanting to do more shopping online. Yes, it's it's convenient and variety, and you don't have to do all these kinds of things. And they recognized that there was a few things that people really looked for, and some things that they absolutely looked for. Some of the things that they looked for was, we want to make sure we get it at a good price. And I don't know if you've noticed, in the past, things online used to be way cheaper. Now they've all kind of evened out. You notice that too? They also noticed that people would pay a little bit more for an item online just because of the convenience of it being delivered to their home and them not having to get out. I think we all learned this during the time of COVID. The other thing is is that they, they realized that people, if you didn't need it today or right in this moment, if you weren't a procrastinator, you could actually have, have a lot of a, an easier experience by choosing something and having it brought to you. but they figured one thing out, and this was interesting the number one thing that people wanted when they shopped online was two little words free returns do you look for that as well? what that said to them was if I don't like it I can drop it off at UPS or Kohl's and I don't even have to pay the shipping and they will take it back now I think that that's a good policy we've had that policy around in most stores for a long time But they noticed that people stopped returning things simply because they had the option to if they wanted to. They found that people held on to their items more because nobody liked to check one of those boxes that required us to pay something to return it. So most items now you can return for free. That is is proliferating this anti-covenantal thinking because that's how we treat marriage. If I don't like it, I'll just take it back to the courthouse. If I don't like something, I'll just give it back. And covenant doesn't mean anything. And what we often lose is we lose what I'm going to call the beauty of covenant. Covenants require death and pain, but they also bring life. Something good happens in the midst of the mess. You know, when God created people, as we read in uh, the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 story, we know that he makes Adam and Eve. And we know that they are naked in the garden. That's what we know from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But God creates people and provides protection for their most sensitive parts. Anatomically, God covers us up. Now, we know the story of what happens. You read Genesis 3, and they sin, and they make bad choices, and God kicks them out of the garden, not before he actually makes them clothes. And one of the things that actually astounds me as I was thinking about that this week is that when God made us, he made us in a protective manner and put them in the garden. And he said, I'm going to protect you. Look, look m- men and women are made differently. We know this. But the reality is God built in some protection Adam that then he had to edit later through the covenant of circumcision because there's a realization and even if you read medical journals today it's it's uh, it's healthier for a man to be circumcised because if they're covered all the time not with God's covenant covering but with human covering it changes some of the anatomy of these areas and yet there's some beauty in that that God made us with a protective nature and that circumcision is an act of trust and a recognition of God's protection of us that, that this is part of what God had to change because we were sinful. God had to make a new covenant. Now, circumcision, we know, is, is kind of a weird practice, and maybe it seems sort of barbaric, but it's no different than if God had said to Abraham, you know, I want you to take out your appendix or shave your head or flip your toenails. It's something that was no longer needed as a result of sin, and God turned something that was bad into a covenantal moment because that's what God does. Again, Please don't hear this in an indelicate way, but men and women go to the bathroom differently. And every time a man would go to the bathroom, it was meant to be a reminder of covenant. I'm in covenant with God. That God can use the things that we hate the most or the things that we don't want to talk about the most as covenantal recognition. It served as a daily reminder of covenant. God wanted us to remember. That's why we wear wedding rings. It's meant to be a daily reminder of covenants that we have made. Now, something very really interesting happens in Scripture and through this, through this process. We learn that circumcision is half of the culmination of God's covenant of marriage. We know that on the eighth day, boys were circumcised. But there was another ritual that took place on wedding days or maybe the day before, and that is that a bride-to-be would go through a ceremonial washing. Her family would be a part of that. The women in her family would be a part of that. And it was a, a way for her to prepare for her bridegroom, to prepare for that covenant moment. It was a way to, to get rid of any physical dirt on your body, any body odor. It was a way to smell good. It was a way to be perfectly clean as you entered into this marriage, into this new covenant with another person. And what we see is that over time as we transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament, there is a shift in how this covenant actually works. And that circumcision is reimagined as the sign of God's covenant through Christ. In fact, it is somewhat replaced in the New Testament. Not to say that it no longer has any value, but it was a sign only for the Jewish people. And as, as the sacrifice of Jesus opens up, salvation to all nations, there is a shift that takes place in this story. And we see that circumcision has a very interesting relationship with baptism in the New Testament. These two things go together. And if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that marriage required both circumcision and baptism or washing. The man had to be circumcised. The woman had to prepare herself to to meet her groom. This was part of God's plan. This is how those things came together. And so as this shift takes place, people that were originally reading these texts put those things together already. And where the emphasis was on one in the first part, the emphasis now shifts to something else. I want you to see what Paul writes to the the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2. Now, I know next Sunday we're having a baptism Sunday, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this what I'm going to call the covenant of baptism. I don't know why we don't call it that. We always call it the act of baptism or the choice or the decision. I think we need to recapture the language of covenant because Paul's going to really emphasize how we, how we come into covenant relationship with God. But in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives In him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. He's speaking about a spiritual form of this. It's a circumcision of the heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, in the, uncircum, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us to condemn us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Circumcision and baptism are tied together in the New Testament, especially for Paul, who is a devout Jew. Need I remind you that Jesus was a devout Jew. He he, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He practiced sacrifices. That's what Jesus does. But he also goes and is baptized to fulfill righteousness. There is the tying together, even in the ministry of Jesus, between these two things. And And they really complement each other. That's why there is this reframing of circumcision in the New Testament. In places like Romans chapter 2 or Galatians 5 and 6 or Ephesians chapter 2. There is the tide that is turning that is saying, listen, it's about our hearts. It's not about the physical body. It's about something incredibly spiritual. And God is doing something. God is taking a heart that is covered with protection, -protection, self-protection, self-interest with pride, with anger, with whatever it's that, and he is going to cut away, painfully cut away, and sacrifice all those things that should not be there. That's why baptism serves as a daily reminder. Did you ever think this way? What do you say to your kids when they come in before they eat? You need to go and wash your hands. Why do we tell them that? Well, because kids are nasty, eh? We all know this. Amen, yeah. But the reality is we want things to be... You guys bathe, don't you? Every time you shower, every time you climb in the bathtub, it's meant to remind us. It's a daily reminder that says, you know what? My body got dirty today, or I have a little bit of BO, or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm getting clean. I get to start a new day clean. And spiritually, that's what baptism is meant to represent. Isn't it amazing that God takes our ablutions, And he turns them into covenantal moments. Because when we are literally naked before the Lord, washing our bodies, it's meant to be reminiscent of covenant. See, baptism becomes the sign or the marker of God's covenant people. The same way that a woman would prepare herself for the bridegroom. Isn't it amazing that the church is called the Bride of Christ? That there's, there's plenty of places, and like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But there are places that talk about how we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Because we know that covenants are physical manifestations of spiritual promises. We are obedient to physical things because of what God is doing in us and through us. So I want to come back to kind of where I started, and that's simply this. Covenants are a big deal. Now, some people, when they hear that, they think, well, I used to be in a marriage covenant that I'm not in anymore. I've made a mistake. I've broken covenant. Everybody's broken covenant. And covenants have, have a lot to do with God, and they have a lot to do with us, And not one of us in this room can live into covenant perfectly. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It's a big deal. And I think that we would do well to start incorporating that kind of language in our lives. We talk about choices a lot. We talk about decisions a lot. We don't talk about covenant a lot. We never teach our kids about the covenant of marriage. Who are they going to learn it from? If we don't live covenantally, if we always have one hand in the world and one hand holding back because we always want that those free returns, I think sometimes we live our faith that way, don't we? I'll commit to this, but I want to make sure that at any point I can take it back. That's not what covenants are. That's actually the antithesis of what a covenant is. Covenant is about about being selfless, about giving something up. We need to cut more covenants. God needs to cut things out of our lives, and it's going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. But we need to become covenantal people. And maybe some of these barbaric practices of the past don't speak to us that way. But we need to become people of covenant that's where God dwells, and that's where God resides, and that's where we meet Him. So hopefully we'll hear a word today as we unfold this, unpack this, as we talk about this weird practice of dunking people underwater. How on earth does that affect my relationship with God? We're going to talk about that. Because what you see is not what's actually happening. There's a covenant being made something beautiful and powerful. Maybe as Paul says at the end of many of his letters, we should think on these things. We should consider them. We should allow them into our lives. What are the covenants that you've made? What are the promises that you've broken? How can we live more fully into God's covenant? Father, today, thank you for inviting us here. Thank you for allowing us to uh, speak about difficult and maybe awkward topics just in a way that is redemptive. Father, sometimes we, we so flippantly talk about the blood of Jesus, and yet we don't realize how covenantal that is. And Father, for the covenants that we do have in our lives, for our marriages, for our, our children, God, today may we, may we realize that We are the ones that put up the obstacles and we need you to cut away all those dead things in our hearts that as we step and become covenantal people as we try to do that even though we fail god we just pray that you would impress upon our lives and our hearts what it means for us to walk in covenant with each other and to walk in covenant father we just pray pray blessing we thank you that covenants are not punishments. (laughs) Thank you that they are blessings, even though in the moments we can't always see that. We just pray that you would call us into deeper relationships.